You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, 14 Lectures, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 6, given in Berlin on the 12th of December, 1912, entitled Natural Science and Spiritual Research. Among the reproaches that are presently leveled against spiritual science and spiritual research, One of the most significant is that spiritual science or spiritual research is opposed to the assured results of natural science, which is, after all, and rightly, the pride of our present intellectual life, and indeed of the whole of our modern culture. If this reproach were to have any foundation, and that spiritual science and spiritual research have the intention of placing themselves in opposition to these assured results of natural science, it would be reasonable to say that this would not bode well for spiritual research. Not only would this affect any possibility that it may have of gaining access to the minds and hearts of people today, but also the very justification for its existence. Thus, in addition to everything that has been said in the previous lectures about the relationship of spiritual research to natural science, this special episodic study about the relationship of spiritual research to natural science will be inserted today, before considering on the next occasion a figure who is eminently accessible only to spiritual science, that of Jakob Burma. Spiritual research, as meant here in these studies, presents itself without doubt as something that in many respects distinguishes itself from the intellectual habits and endeavors of our time as something new, as something that asserts its independence from the ways of thinking of present intellectual life. And the question therefore arises, how is it that precisely at a time when an educated person who is interested in a broad range of intellectual questions places considerable hope in what natural science is able to give, How is it that at such a time this spiritual science wants to succeed in putting itself in the very midst of the triumphant march of natural scientific thinking? This question can most easily be answered if one briefly surveys the intellectual life of the last third or perhaps the second half of the 19th century. This is not the only time when natural scientific research has achieved one conquest after another and risen to its most brilliant heights, but also when the hopes that all conceivable information about the meaning of what one may call mental and intellectual life would surely emerge from natural science were to become ever greater and greater. Anyone who has with full consciousness accompanied intellectual life in the last third of the 19th century or, shall we say, has been in a position to let the great hopes of this 19th century intellectual life to exert their influence upon him, for example, in the 1880s, could observe at that time 
how from all areas of scientific research the only questions that emerged were such as to place all human thinking directly on a new foundation that breaks all connection with the old. Attention will be drawn here to one instance of this. In the 1860s and 1870s, someone interested in intellectual matters could become familiar with what was at the time a more or less new area in science, namely the mechanistic theory of heat. Anyone involved at that time in scientific knowledge regarded something such as the mechanistic theory of heat as an immense achievement of the human mind. But perhaps the standpoint of such a person is of less interest to us than the standpoint of someone who was primarily concerned with the intellectual question of cognition. What did such a person see? Such a person had perhaps been able to observe that among the many sense impressions that besiege someone by way of his senses is the sensation of what one may call warmth, or shall we say warmth and cold. Like color, like light, and like sound, warmth is likewise initially a sense impression. A person feels through his senses how the world around him is in a certain state of warmth, and he initially perceives this warmth as an impression on his feeling life. At this time that has just been spoken of, it was, according to current research, considered to be a proven fact that what people call warmth, in the way that, as they believe, it works in their feeling, is diffused in space, pervades bodies, and affects beings, that what is thus objectively out there in nature is none other than the movement of the minutest bodily parts. Thus one could say, if you put your hand in lukewarm water and perceive a certain degree of warmth, this sensation of warmth is only apparent. What appears to you as a direct impression is only an apparent one. It is only an effect on your organism that is brought about by something. It is merely a miniature form of movement, you do not perceive the movement itself. The smallest parts of the water are in activity, but you do not perceive the activity or movement, largely because the movement is so rapid. You do not perceive it as such, but it makes on you the impression of warmth. When at the time books appeared, such as, for example, titled Heat, considered as a mode of motion, this was considered to be a great achievement of the time and we then had younger people studying how the smallest molecular parts move in a liquid or gas, bump against the walls and against one another. And it became clear to them that the inner activity that is present stimulates the apparent sensation of what is referred to as warmth. From this arose a certain habit of thought, a particular way of observing natural phenomena, and I myself still recall that when I was a little boy, the head teacher of my school, enthused by this scientific achievement of his time, considered all natural forces as such, beginning from gravity and extending to warmth or heat and chemical and magnetic forces, merely as an illusory manifestation, and saw the truth as residing in those movements, in those delicate states of movement within bodies. That head teacher his name was Heinrich Scham, for example, saw gravity 
the tendency of objects to fall, purely in terms of a movement of the smallest parts of bodies. Within such an observation of nature, the only thing that could be said to be genuinely real was the space that extends into infinity, the matter divided into the smallest parts that exists in this space and the movements of this matter. And the hope could probably arise that just as one could, for example, explain heat, electricity, magnetism and light as the refined working of the smallest parts of matter, one would also eventually be able to explain the activity of thinking, soul activity, as the refined working of that matter of which the body of a human being or animal is composed. There then came to be several phases in the evolution of natural scientific theories, whereas in the 1880s one had to conceive of, for example, light and the whole world of color, if one was a physicist, as a kind of appearance and had to study infinitely complicated, refined functions and movements within matter and the ether. In the course of the 1880s, what occurred was that people began to have doubts about these refined functions and confined themselves more to considering the way that the phenomena and facts present themselves, to describing them through the means of calculation, and not so much to speculate about what is, after all, not perceptible, but merely underlying everything, that is, about the more refined functions of matter in the ether. This was how things were in the realm of physics. In this latter realm, it was the case that people saw no real possibility of coming away from the habitual kind of thinking that resulted when they considered these refined workings of matter in relation to anything that might make it possible to comprehend the spirit in a direct way. Something in natural science was, so to speak, holding them back from giving consideration to the spirit, as has been asserted here in the previous lectures. Certain other factors also presented themselves. Anyone who was involved with the developments in natural science did not only have to deal with what has just been characterized, but also with the outcome of everything that had, for example, resulted from the great discoveries of Schleiden and Schwann in the first half of the 19th century, through which the smallest parts within the organisms of plants and animals, cells, were discovered. This did not amount to a demonstration of the reality of atoms and molecules, but organic forms were traced back to their smallest building blocks, to cells, the forms of which were accessible only to the microscope. There then came the further influence of everything associated with the name of Darwin, and also of the great deed of Ernst Haeckel, who in the course of the 1880s extended Darwin's theory to human beings. Thus one was presented with a form of scientific observation, which at its simplest began in the plant and animal worlds, and considered how the individual organs arose from imperfect to more perfected beings, and ultimately to man in such a way that one could, as it were, detect through comparison the emergence of individual organs that were more complicated from simpler ones. An immense wealth of knowledge was collected. The breadth and width of this material was indeed so great that, for example, in the 1870s, 
one of the most significant comparative anatomists of the present time, Karl Gegenbauer, could say in his title Comparative Anatomy, 1878, that in recent decades an immense amount of knowledge has been assembled, which shows how related living beings are as regards their organs, and that one would, Gegenbauer believed, have to await the possibility of raising this knowledge to the level of, in quotes, findings, or, in quotes, insights. And he had great hopes that it would be possible for the Darwinist method to show what a comparison of the organs of the highest living beings with those of less perfected beings would incontrovertibly demonstrate. That there also exists what, in a physical sense, may be referred to as a descent of perfected living beings from less perfected ones. Thus one saw the chain link up in the evolution from less perfected living beings to more perfected ones, and then to man, and one could say to oneself that through a kind of summation of those forces and activities that exist among the simplest living beings, and indeed even through a summation of the forces and activities of lifeless nature, there finally arises the most complicated being that we know, the human bodily structure. Enormous hopes were associated with this natural scientific ideal. The situation at the time was that it was difficult for people to understand the difference between what constituted scientific facts and the thoughts and speculations arising out of these facts, for any thinking person could see that there was a difference between the facts and the theories. The difference that existed could be outlined as follows. When people embarked upon research so carefully and so subtly, as Darwin himself did especially in his early years, they found an immense amount of material concerning mutual relationships, mutual points of comparison between individual living beings from the less perfected animal and plant kingdoms up to man. But there was, they could say to themselves, a difference between what thus emerged as the fact of the similarity of the inner processes and what could only be thought about the hypothesis, the acceptance of the idea of the descent of perfected living beings from less perfected ones. For this descent could not be derived from the facts that had hitherto become known. Researchers were confronted by a whole range of living beings of greater and lesser degrees of perfection. But descent as such remained for anyone who really had his head screwed on a mere hypothesis if he wished to continue to stand firmly on the ground of natural science. But the material was impressive. All that emerged of this nature from natural scientific research entered deeply into people's souls, sometimes in a tumultuous way because of the magnitude of the insights that could thereby be gained. Much else also needs to be taken into account. For the purposes of today's lecture of orientation, there is much that needs to be investigated in greater detail. Thus reference must be made to the great discovery which, for example, Helmholtz had made in the area of the phenomenon of light and the effects of light upon the organ of the human eye, EYE, and as Helmholtz had also made with respect to the phenomena of sound and tone and the effect of sound and tone on the human ear, on the human organ of hearing. 
As a result of this, it became possible to gain insight into the process of seeing, which had hitherto remained mysterious, and also to understand what, for example, happens in the ear, and what a complicated, miraculous structure is to be found in the piano-like apparatus within the ear. In place of much that formerly seemed merely thought out, there was now some precise knowledge of the structure of the human organs. It could be said that what was outwardly only movement and activity was as though transformed. As we have just seen, such a transformation had emerged quite significantly from the mechanistic theory of heat. By what had been revealed about miraculous qualities in the organs with respect to the perceptions living in human souls. And the inner life of the soul is ultimately fashioned from what our organs form from the influences of matter and space. One can perhaps characterize the whole spiritual process that was being enacted within souls at that time by saying that souls were numbed by everything that had been discovered on a broader and a more detailed scale. There was a recognition that nothing had formerly been known about any of this. Many traditions that had existed regarding the human soul now seemed to be invalid whenever one began to study the influence of matter and its movements upon the human organism. That is, when one, in the true sense of the word, began to study natural science. For the spiritual scientist, what really mattered was not so much all the various details, but rather that it had to be admitted that in order to enter into the wide perspectives that a world of the truly factual reveals, something needs to be taken into account that one does not associate with old ways of studying the life of the soul or the spirit. In many souls that experienced everything in the last third of the nineteenth century, the following feeling arose. Such souls could say to themselves, It is true that people in olden times have ventured to think much about the great questions, for example, about the alternation between sleep and waking life, about the question of the immortality of the human soul, about the questions of death and life, about the origin of existence, and so on. But if one compares the whole methodical way of thinking, the whole way in which spiritual research was conducted in those far-off times, whence such traditions of soul research may be evoked, if one compares this with the strict scientific manner of modern scientific research, that which has come from those ancient times is simply no match for the strict conscientious methods of modern scientific research. Even if the spirit researcher is not directly touched by the results of natural science, even if he is perhaps not in the least enraptured by them, one thing worked powerfully also on him. The strictness of natural scientific thinking, the conscientiousness, the enormous sense for truth that characterizes natural scientific thinking. With respect to such a fact, anyone who wanted to have anything to do with science irrespective of whether this was with natural or spiritual science, had to develop the impulse that can be characterized in these terms. Science in the true sense of the word, such as can set the tone for the intellectual and cultural life of the present day, can seek its salvation only in that strict thinking 
in that truly conscientious research that one can learn from natural science. Such an impulse is gradually transformed, and it also had to be transformed in the spiritual scientific researcher, into a kind of scientific conscience. Such a researcher could say to himself, to be sure, as at all times, so also in modern times, the soul has the urge and the impulse to come to know its own nature and being, and above all else the processes that extend beyond birth and death. But only that which presents itself to its time, in accordance with the model of natural scientific thinking, can make an impression on someone who has a clear and unprejudiced outlook. Much could be seen appearing, as it were, on the spiritual market about all manner of soul questions. One saw much that was and is truly far removed from a conscientious mode of thinking that is in tune with natural science. It is true that such things may, through carelessness, through the laziness of contemporary thinking, sometimes make an impression here and there for a while. But such an impression cannot be of any duration, for even the laziest people will eventually ask, what can a conscientious thinking that is in tune with natural science say about what is alleged to have been researched about the spiritual world? Thus the need arose also for soul researchers to adapt their mode of research to the model of natural science. It could be said that the psychology, the soul teaching of the aforementioned Franz Brentano, which has been conceived to fill several volumes, is a kind of ideal picture of this which has not been completed. Of all these volumes only one has appeared, the first in the spring of 1874. And although it was promised that the next volume was to appear in the autumn of the same year, it has not appeared to this day. Brentano did not proceed in accordance with the model of those soul researchers, of whom it was said last time that they wholly exclude the great questions, such as the nature of the alternation between sleep and waking life, the question of the immortality of the human soul, and so on but he wanted to deal with all these questions wholly in accordance with the model of strict natural scientific methodology. He failed. And why did he fail? Franz Brentano was never able to make up his mind to follow the path that is shown to be the one necessary for the present by the very fact that such a spirit as Brentano failed after not wishing to do so. This path has been characterized in the preceding lectures, and especially in the last of these. It was indicated of this path that it alone is suitable for leading us into the higher realms, into the higher regions of existence, into that which also extends beyond birth and death. Franz Brentano could not summon the resolve to follow this path. That one must follow it, if one wants to arrive at an end point or goal, is something that he has formally proved in the negative sense through the fact that his study of the soul or psyche has been confined to the first volume, which has nothing to do with all the great questions that have been mentioned, that he has not been able to arrive at the great questions as he would have wished to do. I attempted to give you a picture of the intellectual and cultural life of the 1880s, 
which included anyone who at that time was looking for a path into the realms of spirit. If everything that has now been mentioned has made an impression, one will not so readily be able to relate to the initially sporadic testimonies of the growing interest in spiritual science that were appearing at that time. I shall merely draw attention to how not only in the midst of natural scientific research itself, but also scientific education, a book such as titled Esoteric Buddhism by A. P. Sinnott found its place. I shall not now address the leading question that Buddhism here has nothing to do with the Buddha and what is known as the religion of Buddhism, but will simply state that with this book, which became known in German-speaking regions in the 1880s, an overview was given of world phenomena, of the great course of cosmic events and also of the questions that relate to the nature of man's being, and also to the relationships concerning a life that extends beyond birth and death. What was communicated in this book could initially appear astonishing. For anyone who directed his attention toward spiritual things could in certain respects express agreement as such with much of what Sinnott writes in his title Esoteric Buddhism. There was little to disagree with as regards what one could and should think, even if one stood strictly on a natural scientific foundation. But one thing was at variance with the scientific education of that time. One thing that meant that one could indeed accept this book as an interesting phenomenon of the age, but that it was impossible to be fully in agreement with it, that in the whole manner of the book's presentation, in the way that things are brought together and traced back to their sources, nothing was justified in terms of strict natural scientific education and truthfulness. And that someone with a scientific education, however much he might agree with particular conclusions and other information imparted by this book, necessarily felt himself repelled by the whole manner of its presentation. It was a similar situation with many other books that appeared in this area. This was even the case with a book by an author who has a certain entitlement to fame, H. P. Blavatsky, which appeared at the end of the 1880s and the beginning of the 1890s, titled The Secret Doctrine. Anyone who had anything to do with these things could say to himself, There is in this book a deep knowledge and insight about spiritual things, but the whole way that it is presented is so chaotic, so intermingled with scientific dilettantism that is especially demonstrated in the contesting of natural scientific theories and hypotheses, that no one with a scientific education can respond to this book in a positive way. Thus two things emerged from this. For someone who, with his mind and heart, affirmed the continuing existence of a spiritual world, there was on the one hand the mode of thinking of natural science, the whole scientific way of forming ideas. Through this he could cultivate his scientific conscientiousness. Through this he could free himself from all dilettantism, if he seriously put his mind to it. Through this he could, however, also learn how strictly research is carried out about factual things, and how through such research about factual things one arrives at definite results, 
that relate directly to life, that are fundamental not only for a theory, but for the actualities of life. On the other hand, such a person could say, yes, but when one seeks to gain from natural science itself something toward a spiritual interpretation of the phenomena of life, indeed when natural science attempts this through its own resources, little can be squeezed out of it by way of spiritual content, and all the less so as it ventures more strictly into the realm of factual realities. This probably gave such a person who was confronted with this situation a reason to look back a little at the evolutionary history of mankind. From this he could learn that even if one ignores spiritual scientific research, something has been assembled in the various cultural documents of peoples and former epochs, something is extant in the form of outward documents that contains a very extensive core of knowledge, which, if one studies it more closely, is not to be taken lightly. And the more one deepens one's knowledge of this assembled evidence, the more it offers by way of illumination about spiritual life, even if one cannot directly approach the way in which it manifests itself or even the manner in which it must inevitably be found when presented in this way. For someone who works on a superficial level, something of the nature of what ancient Egyptian or Chaldean wisdom contains can be nothing more than an accumulation of dreamy imaginings. But anyone who enters more deeply into it will not find mere fantasies, but will actually see that a quality of enlightenment about the nature of the spirit and its influence is contained in these things in forms that from a modern perspective seem in many respects to be grotesque. And something similar to what can be discerned in Egyptian or Chaldean wisdom is also evident in ancient Indian wisdom, insofar as this evidence has been preserved. Admittedly, one should not view something like Indian wisdom with the impression of vast significance that it must inevitably make upon anyone with the eye of a modern philosopher, such as, for example, Doyson, but one will need to place oneself without prejudice within the inwardly illuminating quality associated with certain spiritual relationships. But one thing may strike one. From the manner in which everything is portrayed, it becomes apparent that a spiritual knowledge of the kind that manifests itself to us here is not gained in the same way or by the same methods as the ones we employ for our research today, which have enabled natural science to go from one triumph to another. But if one is sufficiently unprejudiced on the one hand to have a sure recognition of natural science and on the other to become drawn to the way in which a spiritual achievement and a spiritual legacy emanate from ancient times, one will be able to be open to the overwhelming nature of these light-filled insights into spiritual life, and also to see how very different the methods must have been with which these spiritual scientific insights have been won in ancient times. It is indeed so that spiritual science itself shows us how, for example, what can rightly be called ancient Indian wisdom, which reveals to us penetrating insights into the nature of things, is obtained in a very different way. 
we find that that wisdom is not gained through outward observation, not through that thinking which in our time we call natural scientific thinking, but by means of an inner process of self-knowledge, such as we were able to characterize also here for modern times. Yoga methods, methods of self-education of the soul, were employed. These methods led the soul no longer merely to behold and perceive and understand as one perceives and understands in ordinary daily life, but to feel higher cognitive forces germinating within it, which are able to penetrate into the spiritual worlds that reveal themselves to us if we do but develop within ourselves the requisite organs. But for existence within physical life, everything that we have by way of soul activities is in a particular way bound up with the instrument of the physical body. And spiritual research now shows us how ancient Indian research was connected specifically with the instrument of the physical body in a manner that differs from our modern research, as it has been and continues to be conducted in natural science. Natural science conducts its research today through the senses and through the intellect, which is bound up with the instrument of the brain. What did the yoga method bring to human beings? We can address this only briefly here, because our intention is to orient ourselves only around the relationship between natural science and spiritual science. The yoga method enabled a person, to a certain extent, to exclude the thinking instrument of the brain, even to exclude everything that is mediated by the rest of the higher nervous system. That part of the human nervous system which appears today in natural science as a subordinate part, but which is connected in the most intimate sense with what goes on in the human organism, namely with what we associate with the solar plexus and the sympathetic nervous system, became in the yoga methods the instrument for a strictly inward form of perception. Just as our present natural scientific research is bound up with the higher nervous system, those ancient methods of enlightenment were similarly connected with that nervous system which we today even consider to be in a certain sense of a lower order. But because this subordinate nervous system is linked to the forces of existence and to the life forces and is intimately connected with that through which man is himself merged with divine spiritual existence because it is therefore associated with the sources of human existence, with the help of this instrument one recognized the in-streaming of the spiritual world into the human organism. Thus, just as with the eye, E-Y-E, one beholds the worlds of light, so with the instrument of the sympathetic nervous system did people behold the worlds of spirit and perceived in them actual facts and beings. Anyone who can understand how someone who has thus penetrated into his own depths by virtue of this instrument is capable of relating to the universe will also understand how that ancient oriental wisdom has come down to us. If we investigate ancient sources of wisdom, we find that they are consistently unveiled, brought to the surface of human thinking through ancient methods of research, through yoga methods. 
Among different peoples we find the most diverse aspects of this wisdom, and if we do but devote our attention to them, we enter ever more into the depths of this wisdom and come to recognize how human beings approached it in those times when they knew relatively little of modern physical astronomy, anatomy, physiology, and so forth. People living amidst ancient Indian wisdom had no knowledge of what it is like to live in a physical human body in the way that one does today, but they were able to engage with an activity of the organism by employing a deeper level of the nervous system. This was also the case with other peoples. By, as it were, casting one's eye over everything that was influential in terms of such ancient wisdom until the 6th century B.C., one can approach a time approximating to the age of ancient Greece. There we find, in addition to much else, an outstanding thinker who has as often been misunderstood for the good as for the harm that he may have wrought, namely Aristotle, who was active only a few centuries before the founding of Christianity. He continues even today to strike one as a remarkable figure. If we peruse his work, we find in it for the first time in many areas something of what in our time one calls natural science. For in ancient wisdom there is no trace of natural science in the modern sense. Aristotle's contribution to natural science has been acknowledged in terms of the highest praise by people in the 19th century who wish to stand strictly on and only on the ground of natural science. Thus we, therefore, find in Aristotle the starting point of what can be referred to today as natural scientific research. We additionally find in him a developed teaching of the human soul. I shall not enter into the details of his teaching about the soul, but merely draw attention to how what Aristotle says in this regard is related to what shines forth from former times by way of illumination regarding the human soul and its connection with the great spiritual worlds. One only understands what Aristotle has written about the soul if one is clear that everything that he says is given as a legacy of the old ancient thinking that was acquired in the manner that has been characterized. Aristotle is no longer familiar with the research methods of ancient times. They are more remote for him. But what he was able to say about the composition, about the divisibility of the human soul, about the difference between that aspect of the human soul that is related solely to the physical body, and therefore also to death, and that which participates eternally in a spiritual life after passing through death, what Aristotle is able to say about all this has as though come over from ancient times. It is something with whose content he is familiar, something that he has received, such that he could say, it illuminates my understanding. But of the various soul members, he has knowledge only, for example, of the vegetative soul, the spirit soul, and so on. How the individual members connect with the spiritual world, he no longer has any knowledge. He is able to enumerate the various parts, describe and classify them intellectually, and also make them comprehensible in an illuminating way. But he can no longer show how these parts of the human soul are connected with the spiritual world. 
the approach pioneered by Aristotle was carried forward into later times. Natural science became increasingly developed. There was, of course, the low point in the Middle Ages and the new dawn of natural science at the beginning of modern times. But if one disregards this, one can say that natural science developed to an ever greater degree. What, then, is the basis of man's relation to natural science and to the objects of natural science? Let us imagine that a person was alone with his senses, that he was unable to open up, as it were, to link his senses to the kingdoms of nature that are outspread around us. What would individual human life be like without this relationship to nature? Consider this quite simply. If we were unable to form a connection with nature, we could perhaps dispense with our eyes and thereby have some possibility of something like an inner manifestation of light. But compare the miserable inner life in the whole physical world that a person could have through himself alone if he was unable to have a connection with the kingdoms of nature. Compare it with the rich life that is revealed when a person opens his eyes and his other sense organs to the kingdoms of nature and its impressions. We are human beings in that we live not only in ourselves but open up our organs to the kingdoms of nature that are spread out around us and in that we are in a state of interaction with these kingdoms. Were we only to know what the eye, what our other sense organs are able to engender, how poor in content would we be as human beings here in the physical world? This gives some way of comparing what gradually became of the inner life of the soul in the times when natural science emerged and went from triumph to triumph. With regard to the life of the soul, what Aristotle had given was, as it were, taken further, and people concerned themselves only with the observation of soul phenomena. However, this is as though one were to allow the senses to be active only within themselves, and to this day this is what the official science of the soul does. Even in our own time, all content of official soul science is confined to what can be compared with the mere inner activity of our sense organs or our brain when the thoughts of the brain are not directed out into the widths of the world. But we have seen in the previous lectures that through the methods of spiritual science, and this was also the case with ancient forms of spiritual science, the soul is affiliated to spiritual domains that are just as real and inwardly coherent as the realms of nature by which we are surrounded in the physical world are affiliated to the sense organs. These spiritual domains, these wholly real spiritual facts and beings, were for a certain time, which was to allow outward natural scientific research to come to maturity, not accessible. And so the knowledge of the life of the soul became increasingly impoverished, because a spiritual perspective of the very real evidence for the spiritual world was lacking. The soul was at best investigated in relation to its inner life, as Franz Brentano still did in the 1870s, as you can see for yourself in his title, Psychology. But the nature of his research is as if one were to investigate the eye only with respect to what it can be out of itself 
EYE, and not with respect to what it is capable of when it is directed toward the facts of nature. Now, one may say that it was precisely through a more exact perception of the physical processes of man's being that attention was diverted from the spiritual worlds with which the soul is connected. The soul is, on the one hand, indeed connected with these spiritual worlds that receive it when it has crossed the threshold of death or when it enters another world through sleep. But the soul is connected with the physical world through its organs, through the entire nervous system, and through the entire circulation of the blood. Through the fact that natural science has become ever more significant in its methods, the attention of human beings was directed toward that connection of the soul that arises between the soul and physical circumstances. The results of natural science were in this respect so colossal that human beings completely found fulfillment in, for example, how the soul fully expresses itself in its associations with the circulation of the blood and so on. Every new triumph of natural science was in a certain way unfavorable to directing the soul's attention to the connection with the spiritual world. It is also valid to look at it in this way. Anyone who wants to acquire familiarity with a clock will have a poor idea of its whole organism if he says, When I look at how the hands of the clock move forward, there is perhaps a little demon sitting there who is moving the hands in a clockwise direction. If a person who says something of this kind felt himself to be superior to someone who merely studies the mechanism of the clock, one would have a good laugh at him, for only someone who really studies the clock's mechanism learns about it and someone else again learns about the intellectual or spiritual life of the clockmaker or of the one who invented the clock from the clock's mechanism. One can follow both paths, investigating the mechanical process of the workings of the clock and getting to know the sequence of human thoughts that led to the clock's invention. But it would be nonsensical if someone wanted to infer that demons of some sort were setting the whole mechanism of the clock in motion. That aspect of research into human nature, which would correspond to tracing the sophisticated mechanism of the clock back to the thoughts of the inventor, has gradually been lost to humanity. For as regards the human soul, it would correspond to tracing thoughts back to the beings of the spiritual world. Instead, it went triumphantly in natural science from one fact to another, thus to what corresponds to the, in quotes, clock's mechanism. And one can make an interesting observation. The knowledge that is still extant from ancient times is usually lost to humanity in those periods when knowledge relating to it can be investigated with precision by natural science. It is remarkable that at the end of the 16th, and the beginning of the 17th century, we see how the philosopher Cartesius, Descartes, still had a certain notion of how something spirit-like works within a human being, from the heart to the head, to the human head. Cartesius still speaks of certain life spirits that are not of a physical nature, but whose forces interact between the heart and the head. We then see how such knowledge increasingly disappears in the intellectual life of mankind. 
If anyone asks why this is so, he can be answered as follows. We see that simultaneously with this historical disappearance of the knowledge of spiritual processes relating to the heart, there emerges the knowledge of the physical organism of the heart and of the circulation of the blood. At the beginning of the 17th century, we first see how the English physician Harvey publishes his discovery of the circulation of the blood, and how Marcello Malpigi in Bologna was the first to show as an anatomist through the blood circulation of the frog, how elaborate the whole blood circulation is. Thus attention was directed toward processes associated with the senses. Knowledge about spiritual facts was, as it were, driven out by a precise knowledge of the sensory process. Whereas it signified a triumph for natural science that Francesco Redi, born in 1624, formulated the proposition which stood in opposition to many assertions of a former age, that, quote, everything living derives from the living, close quote. We can nevertheless say that when humanity came to trace the organic element as such back to the seed or germinal substance, to the physically indeterminate aspect of the organic seed, it lost sight of how the spiritual aspect itself intervenes in evolution independently of the organic seed. The understanding for the spiritual seed or essence was lost to humanity. This happened by degrees. The more natural science advanced as a conquering force, the more lost did the awareness of the spiritual world become. Such things are not chance occurrences. They are also not something that one should censure or criticize but they are necessary evolutionary processes of the whole history of humanity. This is how it has to be. It often happens that when one thing is in the ascendancy and arrives at a culmination, something else declines. What we today admire about natural science, and indeed recognize as necessary, presents itself to us if we are aware of its true evolutionary purpose, in such a way that we say spiritual science does not have the least reason to take issue with natural science if it keeps within its boundaries. It also has no reason to complain about the one-sidedness of natural science. For the great achievements of natural science to this day have come about not by mixing up scientific research with all manner of speculations, but only by calmly keeping one's gaze directed toward physical processes related to the senses. Indeed, one can discover in the dawn of modern cultural life how it was only through the opposition to Aristotelianism, also to what was inherently justified about its content, that spirits such as Galileo or Giordano Bruno arrived at their successes in that they refused to include in their research anything other than what was accessible to their senses and was sufficiently informative. In our time, the spiritual scientific researcher must relate to the natural scientific researcher in such a way that he says, the more that natural scientific research is itself kept free from all speculation and all philosophizing, the more that one directs one's attention solely to the facts and does not conjure up all sorts of intellectual or spiritual essences, the better it is for natural science. 
the spiritual scientific researcher would wish to advocate that natural scientific facts are kept free from any speculative discussion of a natural scientific or spiritual scientific nature. Thus one can today on the one hand be a spiritual scientific researcher and on the other hand stand up for the authenticity and groundedness of natural scientific research. And it is merely a false preconception if one believes that the spirit researcher has to oppose natural science. It is somewhat different when one has to deal with numerous theories thrust in the direction of spiritual science that some people would wish to derive from natural science. The natural scientific researcher is then himself embarking on the path of spiritual science, and in the majority of cases he is only very little familiar with it. But one aspect of natural scientific knowledge nevertheless holds good both for spiritual science and natural science. This is the conscientious method previously characterized, the conscientious sense for truth of which we have often spoken in these lectures and which we also characterized as sticking with the facts. How do these facts arise? We have seen how they do through certain forces becoming accessible in the human soul that from this soul give rise to the connection with the higher worlds in the same way that the senses give rise to the connection with the physical world. Just as the senses ascertain the facts of the physical world and should leave them as they are and not tarnish them with speculations, so is it also a case of not philosophizing or speculating about the results of clairvoyant observation, but adhering also here strictly to the facts. Then one is indeed adhering strictly to the standpoint of spiritual science, but in a similar way in its realm to how one relates to natural science on its own ground. This is the approach of spiritual science as it is represented here. This is what a spiritual science that feels a responsibility toward the spiritual needs of our time should have as its unalloyed concern. And in any natural scientific research that is worthy of its name, this also immediately happens with respect to facts that are available to spiritual science when natural science has knowingly reached its limits. Here, again, some very strange results arise purely out of the facts themselves. I should just like to recall what arises if we consider the views of the great natural scientist Dubois-Raymond as he has expressed them in his addresses. The most significant of these was perhaps the one about the, quote, frontiers of a knowledge of nature, close quote, which he gave at the 45th Assembly of German Scientists and Doctors in Leipzig on the 14th of August, 1872. Here we find a passage, and I am still aware of the deep impression that this passage of his address made on me as a young man when it first appeared, where he says something along these lines. If we have a person before us in his waking life, natural science can say nothing about how feelings, ideas, wishes, passions, or emotions arise out of the activity of the minutest parts of his brain. Quote, what conceivable connection is there between particular movements of certain atoms in my brain, on the one hand, and, on the other, facts that are fundamental to my nature, which are indefinable and cannot be explained away? 
Quote, I feel pain, I feel pleasure, I taste sweetness, smell the fragrance of roses, hear the sound of an organ, see redness, close quote, and the resultant constant but questioning certainty that I must exist. It is utterly and lastingly incomprehensible that it should not be a matter of indifference to a number of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, etc., atoms, how they lie and move, how they lay and moved, how they will lie and move. Dubois Raymond considered it to be impossible to understand the soul life of someone in a waking state through natural science. He therefore said, If we have someone before us who is asleep, in whom the life of feelings, ideas, wishes, emotions, and passions has been extinguished, we can understand this sleeping human being in a natural scientific way. We then have something before us that we can call an inner organic activity. But as soon as life enters into this organism, when the person wakes up, this changes. Then this life, this soul content, cannot be explained scientifically from what the natural scientist is able to understand. The sleeping person thinks Dubois Raymond is scientifically comprehensible, but not one who is awake. This is on the one side. Read, on the other hand, the latest treatises about the nature of sleep. You will everywhere find it agreed that natural science has nothing to say about the reasons for sleep, that it has nothing to say about people when they are asleep, which, according to Dubois Raymond, was something that can be ascertained. So we see, on the one hand, indications that natural science, on its trailblazing path, is admitting its limits, in that the soul life of a waking human being is scientifically opaque. While, on the other hand, we have in our own time to confess that sleep has to this day no explanation. Why not? Because sleep belongs in those regions where the spirit rays into ordinary life. And we cannot explain sleep if we are unable to explain waking life. In one of the first lectures of this winter cycle, I referred to how natural science can at best conceive of a mechanism that, after a certain time, automatically calls forth the urge to eliminate consciousness and sensory activity in order to take away tiredness. But as was previously said, if one confines oneself to the idea that sleep is brought about by a kind of independent process of the organism that proceeds on an automatic basis, one has no explanation of the elderly person who has not been working and yet has his afternoon nap. And we also have no explanation of a small child who sleeps most of all. In contrast, I have drawn attention to the fact that sleep is explainable only if we presuppose that when a person is asleep, only the physical body and the etheric body are lying in bed, and that when he goes to sleep, an essentially spiritual element, namely the astral body and ego, departs from his being. What is enabled to happen through a person's soul nature being, as it were, outside the physical and etheric body during sleep? We shall speak more fully about these things. Today the following brief indications will be given. When the soul nature, as such, leaves the physical body and its enlivening companion, something is called forth that is of an opposite nature to the waking activity of the soul. In waking activity the soul is animated. No limb moves, 
without the soul's knowledge. Mental images are, to the very least degree, called forth without the soul making use of the instrument of the brain. The soul must be active in the waking state. The opposite is the case in sleep. We can say that the soul enjoys its own bodily nature in sleep life. If we proceed in accordance with spiritual research, we do so in awareness of the difference between soul activity and soul enjoyment in the waking and sleeping states, and we comprehend the mutual relationship between soul work and activity and soul enjoyment, the latter of which must flow into soul activity if this is to be sustained in the appropriate way. Now, the elderly person no longer puzzles us by taking his afternoon nap, even though he is not tired. And we know that if the soul enjoys its body, it can carry this too far, and that one can sleep when one is not tired. We understand this if we know how, in certain constitutions, the pleasure of the bodily nature can be taken to excess. All this one will understand if one knows how to explain sleep from a spiritual scientific point of view. That is to say, there is an area where natural science believes that it has undisputed authority, and where spiritual science only has something to say to it insofar as the spirit pervades everything, including the processes of nature. But then there is an area where what natural science is able to research is no longer present, where there are indeed facts but facts that can only be perceived if the process of perception is not of a sensory but of a supersensible nature. If spiritual science proceeds with the same conscientiousness and becomes accustomed to think in its realm as strictly as natural science does in its domain, it cannot come into a collision with natural science. With this, however, spiritual science stands on a ground which is in many respects at variance with what has gradually developed in the course of the cultural life of mankind. Thus we see how those who can be seen as the predecessors of true spiritual research, Goethe, for example, had to battle against that which arose that was contrary to a spiritual scientific endeavor. We see this most clearly if we look at the way that Goethe defended himself against Kant, it was Kant who sought to establish that the knowledge that has developed in recent times is bound up with the instrument of the brain, must be limited to outer experience, and is unable to penetrate into the foundations of the world with which our soul's spiritual life is connected. This is the source of Kant's strict demarcation between science, in quotes, and what he calls faith, in quotes, and higher realms are for Kant accessible only to belief. Hence he puts in the place of knowledge about a world of eternity or of the divine spiritual a belief that insists on the, quote, categorical imperative, close quote. Thus he decrees that the position of knowledge within spiritual science is one of pure belief, but Goethe says in his fine essay on title Contemplative Judgment, close quote, with regard to Kant, if one can in the sense envisaged enter with one's feelings into a spiritual region in which the divine spiritual originates and from which morality is derived, why should the human spirit 
if it raises itself into this spiritual region, not also truly sustain the adventure of reason. For Kant called it a, quote, daring adventure of reason, close quote, if man wants to enter into realms in which, according to Kant, there can be no knowledge. The question that matters for Western thinking is, how does one make the transition from natural science to spiritual science? The point is not that one needs to combat natural science, but that one fully acknowledges it, indeed truly recognizes its successes, while nevertheless wholly in accordance with the model of natural scientific research, one extends human knowledge to those realms with which the soul is connected in its spiritual foundations as regards those impulses that endow it with life, even when it has left the physical body and is preparing to form a new bodily organism. It will be the task of a true spiritual research increasingly to abandon in our time an unwarranted mockery of or wish to take issue with the justified claims of natural science. This will, of course, depend on spiritual science also only being recognized as justified if it is familiar with the current situation of natural scientific research, and if, therefore, it is not motivated by a spirit of dilettantism to infringe against what can rightly be demanded by a present-day scientific education. But just as the natural scientist cannot confine himself to studying the inner nature of the eye, the ear, the sense of warmth, and so forth, but explores how a person has to direct what the senses are able to experience inwardly toward the rich, solid surroundings of the physical world, so must the soul nature be recognized in that through self-education, through a new kind of yoga schooling, as was described last time, but through a new kind that is significantly different from all the old kinds, the soul lives together with that with which it is connected in the spiritual domain, and this begins only where natural scientific research reaches its limits. This is the precise relationship between natural science and spiritual science, but it also indicates the possibility of an ongoing, peaceful coexistence of and mutual understanding between natural science and spiritual scientific research. If what has already been said in the previous lectures in this respect is brought into connection with what I have been permitted to say today, in brief, about the relationship between natural scientific and spiritual scientific research, one will also be able to gain some understanding of the justified aspect of spiritual scientific research and also of the possibility of spiritual research acquiring a place of equal importance in our modern age alongside natural science. And one will be able to hope that the justified objections, the justified reservations that still exist today on the part of modern scientists will gradually disappear once they see that spiritual science far from being a lot of confused nonsense or a random set of assertions and superstition, is well familiar with what a natural scientific education of the present requires. If such a thing happens, 
spiritual research will increasingly appear as justified before the natural scientific conscience of the present. And people will gradually also be able to understand from what arises from the actual realities of cultural life that spiritual research is indeed both possible and justified and that the objections to spiritual research actually belong to a realm regarding which one can say something similar to the way that Goethe once spoke about a different realm, namely about the need to raise oneself above all lack of understanding and all illogicality. With a view to summarizing the relationship of the spirit researcher to those who appear as enemies of spiritual scientific research, I should like, in conclusion, to say a few words by way of comparison about something that Goethe once said about an entirely different matter. Goethe was thinking about an ancient Greek teaching and explanation regarding movement, which, however, still had an influence upon modern philosophy, a teaching that asserts that when an object moves, one can observe it at every moment, and at every moment, even in the shortest period of time, it is at rest. It is at rest even if only for a moment. Thus, there can be no, in quotes, movement, for at every point of time a moving body is at rest, and therefore is without movement. This is Zeno's conclusion about movement, and this legacy from ancient Greece has continued to haunt the modern age. Goethe approached this objection to the idea of movement in a quite distinctive way, and he once expressed this beautifully, quote, If hostile forces you espy, stay calm, stay silent too. And if your movement they deny, surround them through and through. I cannot but recall this verse when, as in recent times, I am assailed with the assertion what you call spirit, in quotes, is the result of purely material activities, material processes and movements. Spirit is derived from matter. Just as, in the sense of what has just been said, movement derives wholly from stillness and has nothing real about it, there is also nothing real about spirit that is not matter. If, in the way in which we are trying to penetrate into the spiritual world in these studies, one tries to gain knowledge of the spiritual world and enters rightly into spirit's essential nature, one may perhaps be inclined to define what spiritual scientific research has brought to light about the spirit in its relationship to the opponents and enemies of spiritual science by means of a small change of Goethe's words. And this may serve as a summary of what I have to say about the relationship between natural science and spiritual science, such that one characterizes the right view of the true spirit researcher with respect to his enemies as follows. Quote, If something hostile does take place, stay calm, but cheerful too. And if the spirit there minded to efface, brood not, and do not rue, and grant that ultimately they're right, it bodes ill for their spirit. The end of Lecture 6